Good evening. I hope you have your copy of God's Word. And if you do, if you will open it to Colossians chapter 1. We will be focusing our attention tonight on verses 19 through 22. And we'll do verse 23, Lord willing, uh, next week in our communion service together. Let me begin by reading this portion of scripture. Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Pray one more time for blessing. Father, as we have already prayed, we pray that now you would open our eyes to see your word. We ask that you would bless us, that your word would be like fire, warming us, purifying us, and giving us light, and that it would be like a hammer, smashing our hard hearts and removing all of the obstacles before us. So, Father, let it be that my words fall to the ground and blow away. Let your word remain and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Frederick Douglass is one of the best-known figures in the history of American abolition. Douglass was an African-American slave who, as you perhaps may know, escaped from his American owner, who was a professing Christian, a man by the name of Thomas Ald. Douglas used his dazzling oratory skills and became a very visible and influential figure to end slavery. On the 10th anniversary of his escape, Frederick Douglass celebrated his escape in a very unique way. He wrote an open letter, a public letter, to his former slave owner. I won't read the whole letter, but in it he declares that he intends to make his slave owner a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery, to, to use his hypocrisy to expose the character of the American church and the clergy. Douglas goes on to say, and, and now I'm quoting, he says, just think of him saying this to his former slave master. I entertain no malice toward you personally. There's no roof under which you would be more safe than mine. And there's nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as how mankind ought to treat each other. Signed, I'm your fellow man, but not your slave. Douglas had forgiven his former slave master, but the two were not reconciled. To 
29 years later, however, Douglas was invited, now a very prominent figure, to return back to the county, Talbot County in Maryland, where he had been a slave. And when he returned, he did not know that his old slave master was still living or that he was on his deathbed. His former master sent for him, and Douglas tells how when he got to Ald's house, he was taken straight back into the bedroom, and there, the two old men were immediately overcome with emotion. Neither showed malice. Each confessed ways that he had wronged the other. Douglas said that they freely conversed about the past, and they left reconciled. I'll tell you this story because it is a picture of reconciliation, where two persons are alienated from one another and then are restored to one another in friendship and peace, where a relationship goes from one of hostility and enmity to one of peace and friendship, where weapons are put down and those who were once enemies sit down at a table and dine in friendship. The text before us tonight continues to display the glory and the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ by describing his reconciling work. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on tonight. That is the main idea before us. That we were once enemies, but God took the initiative to change the status of the relationship. He changed us from enemies to sons and daughters of God. When I was in college, there was this common phrase that was used to describe a common yet awkward situation. It was called DTR. I wonder if any of the younger folks or maybe the guidance counselors in here know what DTR means. It stood for defining the relationship. Right, And it came about in a situation where there was a guy and a girl who were hanging out and getting friendly, but the status of the relationship would become a little hazy, right? Maybe the guy liked the girl more than the girl liked the guy, and they had to clarify. They had to define, you are not my boyfriend, right? They had to define the relationship, right? They would try to figure out, are we just friends, or is there something more? Like, do you want to date me? Because if so, you know, just... Most often, this was used by girls to say, uh, you're a nice guy, but I'm not interested in you. In fact, I remember today, I once had a girl tell me, you're a nice guy, the kind of guy a girl wants to marry, but not the kind of guy a girl wants to date. True story. Sorry. Defining the relationship, right? A DTR. Well, reconciliation is a term that defines the relationship between God and his people. He redefined and established the relationship. We used to be enemies, but now we are friends. And that's the main idea in the text this evening, that in Christ, God has happily reconciled all things to himself through his death on the cross. And we'll see tonight four different features of reconciliation. And if you're perhaps wondering, you may not be, uh, I don't know if you've read the text recently, but uh, if you're perhaps wondering, how does this connect with what we've seen so far in Colossians? How does this connect with the previous 18 
verses? Well, it is, in all of those previous verses, we've been seeing how Christ is better. That he is preeminent. That he is above all things. Well, this is simply a continuation of Christ's preeminence. He is better than everything and everyone. He is preeminent in creation because he made creation. And then tonight we'll see that he's preeminent in the new creation because he made that too on the work, by the, his work on the cross. If you think about it, there's really two creative acts that are going on here. You could say that God, you know, you could, would rightly say that God created the world in Christ and that's the first creation, right? He created all the world and all who live in it. But you could also say that since God in Christ reconciled all things to himself, he recreated or newly created. It's a second creation. And if he's supreme in the first one because he created it, how will he be seen in the second since he created it? Supreme. Christ is before and above all things as both our creator and as our Redeemer. So let's, let's look at some of these features of reconciliation together. The first one I'm calling, I'm describing it as this. It is the happy reconciliation mission. The happy mission of reconciliation. Of course, this rescue mission begins with a problem, with a conflict. Navy SEALs are not sent out on a mission unless there is a problem to be solved. And Christ came to solve a problem. We can read some about this problem here in verse 21. If you'll notice in the text, a description of all of fallen humanity. Not just the bad sinners, not just the Muslims or the liberals, but all natural man. Sinners. We must find ourselves, each one of us, in each of the three bleak descriptions in this text. The text says that we were, in verse 21, alienated, hostile, or perhaps it could be translated hateful in our minds, and doing evil deeds. That first word, alienated, it struck me. It has hopelessness built into it. It means to, to be estranged, to be cut off, to be disconnected. And since you and I, as sinners, lack all power to reconcile ourselves, it is a hopeless and, can I even say, a permanent situation. We were active in this lifestyle with hateful thoughts and attitudes toward God and his law. And we're actioned, action-oriented, actively carrying out that hatred and that rebellion in the way that we lived. It doesn't matter if you're a church folk. If you grew up in this very church's Sunday school class. It doesn't matter, right? We all naturally, our sinful nature naturally resents God and see his laws as intrusive and burdensome. One of my precious children, I will not tell you, who, illustrates this at times. We will give her a command and she, as she said two days ago, she will stomp her foot and say, I don't like that. It doesn't go well for her after that, in the brief moments after that. But I don't like, I don't like it that you're telling me what to do. 
That is the sinner's natural attitude towards God. That was or is your attitude towards God. And because of that, we are alienated from him. I was, we could think of the astronaut, Bruce McCandless, who was the man who stepped off the Challenger to do the first untethered spacewalk. Let me say that again. An untethered spacewalk. I'm not entirely sure what that is, but I'm pretty sure it's walking in space without being connected to the spaceship. And that sounds like trouble to me, right? He did the first untethered spacewalk. And he returned safely home. But for us, our sin has left us floating, lost, floating uncontrollably out into space without hope of return unless someone comes and gets us. NASA can't do it. Humans can't do it. Only one can come get us. And that someone is Jesus. With all, with planning that makes NASA's space expeditions look like a, like a cheap afterthought, we see in the scriptures God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit contriving together a happy plan to go get some sinners. I say it's a happy plan because the text says that to us. Look there at verse 19. The text tells us that it was God's pleasure to fully dwell in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That word fullness is a word that indicates that the complete God was found in Christ. There are lots of cultural implications of this to, to the church at Colossae, but we can understand and learn that God did not send, he did not delegate the work of redemption to a lesser being. To a, to a, to, as, if, as if his son was kind of a representative, but not fully him. What we, what we see here is that God himself is Jesus. God himself took on flesh. The son is just as divine as the father and possesses every single attribute of the divine nature. The mysterious indwelling here reminds us that God took the initiative. You were helpless. You and I were helpless, lost in space, disconnected. So God made a plan. And God did the work. And so guess who gets the glory? God. The text tells us that this also was God's pleasure. I've been meditating on this this week and have been encouraged by it. We're coming up on Holy Week, starting on Sunday, where we will spend extra time meditating on the details and the events of the suffering and the agony of the cross. We'll be reminded of Christ's agony in the crucifixion and in all the events leading up to it, particularly even in the garden, where we hear Christ utter that stunning request, God, is there some other way? Is there a plan B? Is there some other way that we can pull this off? Well, Christ's suffering was very real. But as we consider it, we must remember that he took it on willingly. He wanted to do it. 
it, the Bible says that it was the Father's pleasure and the Father's will to crush him or to bruise him. And it was the Son's pleasure to obey and to redeem sinners. Jesus suffered willingly. And dare we say even happily. We're often tempted to think of redemption as a messy, kind of reluctant, kind of last resort sort of business. I chuckle about this almost every time I go to Chick-fil-A. I'm not, I, I can't get over this, right? You go to Chick-fil-A and you ask for some extra ketchup and like a pimple-faced kid says, sure, it is my pleasure. And I'm like, ha, no, it is not. I know it is not your pleasure to give me this ketchup. I know you would rather be home playing Xbox, right? Let me try again. Can I have some more ice? It's my pleasure. Right? Have you heard them say that? It's, it's, my, it's my pleasure, right? And I remember the first time I heard this, I, I told my wife. <laughs> she had to put up with this little rant, and she might have heard it a few times since then. I'm like, it's not their pleasure. They're required to do that. They, in fact, they, the only reason they're there is because they get paid to say it is their pleasure to, you know, give me my refill. I find it amusing. But that's not the kind of pleasure that God gets from reconciling all things to himself. His pleasure is not manipulated. It's real and sincere. Even in the suffering and the agony. Not the suffering itself, but in the outcome. We can understand this. I mean, what parent would not gladly suffer any inconvenience, any loss, any pain, and even any type of death for the sake of their child? We can understand that. Imagine that most of you, perhaps all of you are like me, you would gladly die for your children. The agony of the cross was terrible. The wrath of God was full, but redemption was and is the happy work of God. As if he's saying, I'm off to rescue my children, I'll be back soon. It was the Father's pleasure. The suffering of the incarnate God, Jesus, was the happy pleasure, the happy plan of God. I realize I'm skipping around a little bit in the text, but let's now look at the method of this mission. Right? So number two, a second thing we learn about this redemption is that the reconciliation comes through death. Reconciled through death. There in verse 20, the text says that he was making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, in verse 22, we also see that we have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. To understand this sacrificial language and the, and the need to die, we have to think back on the pattern of the sacrificial system, which was set forth for us in the Old Testament. Sin can only be paid for by the shedding of blood. If you're following the CBR reading plan, we read yesterday in Romans chapter 5 that sin is always connected with death. That sin came into the world and death through sin and so death spread because all sinned. Sin and death always go hand in hand. The lifeblood that was spilt by Christ satisfied the wrath of God. In this climactic event, which Christ, who served as priest, he offered himself as the sacrificial lamb, the lamb without spot or blemish. 
And there he expiated the full toll of God's condemnation against an untold multitude of sinners like you and me. His body was broken and his blood was spilt and now God is fully satisfied. Ephesians chapter 2.14, Paul says, He himself is our peace. He made peace by the blood of the cross. That hostility that we as sinners had against God was changed from hostility to peace. 2 Corinthians 5.19 summarizes it beautifully. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their sins against them. And there was no other way. I came came across a, a quote from Dorothy Sayers who said it like this, Whatever the answer to the problem of evil is, this much is true. God took his own medicine. God took his own medicine on the cross. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you tonight, no matter what sort of suffering you're facing, no matter what the circumstances are in your life, never, never doubt the love that God has for you. Consider the cross. But what does all this accomplish? Third thing we see about this reconciliation is that it accomplished total victory. Total victory. Another way we could put this question is, how effective was it? What did Jesus accomplish? What, what was the result? Well, the text tells us here in verse 20 that Christ came to achieve total reconciliation. Where, look, at the, look how the text says that, that he, uh, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven. All things. Look at that language. Reconciling all things to himself. I mean, what in the world does that mean? Well, there also in verse 21, we see not only has he reconciled all things in heaven and earth, but also specific sinners, right? He's saying to the Colossians there in, in verse 21 that he is reconciling you, Colossian sinners, and you, Jonesburian sinners, and sinners in Johnson City and Telford and Gray. But what does he mean when he's saying that he reconciled all things to himself? What does that mean there in verse 20? Does it mean that all will be saved? Does it mean that Satan himself and all the devils will be ultimately saved? Well, I think that Jesus and Paul and John and others are all incredibly clear in other places that this is not the case. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians that that there are some who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So I think when Paul is saying that that Christ's goal is to reconcile all things to himself, he doesn't mean that everything will be redeemed. But that that one day there will be no rebel remnants. There will be no one who is allowed to continually oppose God. That that the day is coming when all things will be reconciled to God. That is, the blood of Christ has secured victory over the created universe in such a way that all things in the new heavens and the new earth will be entirely reconciled. There will be no rebel holdouts 
who can continue to oppose God's rule. That all rebels, all sinners, all who oppose God, they will be cast into outer darkness. And they will not be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. This is part of how God will reconcile all things to himself. He will make it all right. I was thinking about this even, even more. And I thought, you know, in war, peace can be attained by the two parties reaching a treaty or by defeat. And here we see that God does both. And can be reminded, brothers and sisters, that God will have his way. He is a competent king. Which means that as rebels, you and I, along with all in the world, we have two options. Our sin will either be paid for in hell or on the cross. Blood will, blood must be spilt for our sins. The question is, will it be your blood or will it be Christ's blood? You must suffer forever if you're to atone for your own sin. But Christ was able to suffer and die and then rise once for all. He didn't just go to the grave as you and I will, but he rose from the grave. Making it possible that for all who place their faith in him to be reconciled to God. So may I, as a former sinner who was once alienated from God in my sin, can I urge you, On behalf of God, be reconciled to him by placing your faith in Christ. The sex also reveals to us God's purpose and reconciliation. Why did he do it? You have an answer for that question, and most people's answer is just like, you know, I'm great. God couldn't live without me, right? Have you ever heard that at a funeral? God needed such and such more than we do. That is, that is not true, right? Why did God do this? What was his purpose? Verse 22 moves past what God has done to why God has done it. The text says he's done it in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I mean, what, what's his end game? What is he up to? What was he up to on the cross? This text tells us that he's recreating us so that we can stand before him. He's making you new so that you can now live with him. He's preparing to represent you before himself as a servant set apart, this time happy to do his will and to serve him. God has saved you, Christian, to make you holy. Not simply to keep you out of hell. He's saved us to make us holy. God's ultimate goal in reconciliation is to present his elect as a bride. A beautiful bride. Spotless, holy, and pure before him. But of course, there's some tension here, isn't there? Right? The text says that God has already done this reconciling, but are we holy yet? He died to make us holy and blameless and pure. Has this already happened? Or are we waiting on this to happen? How how does this work? I mean, verse 22 says that he has now reconciled in his body. That sounds like that's already happened. But one look in the mirror... One look at my life and I see ways that I am still waiting to be made holy and blameless and above reproach. The answer is that he has done it and he is doing it. 
The answer is both. The work is as good as done, but he's still working. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, he puts it brilliantly. He says, he has done it in principle, and he's doing it in practice. You have been justified, and you are now being sanctified. In our home, we use uh, a, a discipleship tool called the New City Catechism to teach theology to our children. And Karis, our oldest, is on question number 32 of the New City Catechism, where the question asks, what is justification and what is sanctification? Well, the answer, which I've heard 10,000 times in my car, <laughs> is that justification is our declared righteousness before God. And sanctification is our gradual, our gradually growing righteousness. Right? One is declared righteousness and the other is gradual growing righteousness. Believer, you have been declared righteousness before God and now he is making you righteous. Do you see that truth? I know that's hard, so perhaps another illustration would be helpful here. Martin Luther used to describe it like this. He said, he said consider a patient who is mortally ill with a deadly disease. He's on his deathbed. And a doctor comes in and gives him the wonderful news. I have found the medicine that will make you well. I'm sending for it through medical transplant. It is, it is coming and once it gets here, we will give it to you the moment it arrives. So you're excited. The medicine arrives and immediately it is given to the patient. Now the moment that that medicine passes through the lips of the patient, the doctor declares the patient to be well. At that instant, the patient is still sick. But as the medicine begins to work through his body, he begins to get well until he is fully recovered. That's how our reconciliation and justification work. The moment that we truly turn to Christ in faith, we begin to get well. And the process of becoming holy is underway. And the future completion is certain. But it takes time. And so as we struggle, as we work hard in our growth and in our sanctification, we can trust God in all the failures. Totally secure. There are still many sin symptoms in my life. But God is changing me. And he has promised to complete it. So I can fight sin hard knowing that the victory is sure. Oh, sinner, you who are still, you are sick and mortally ill. You may feel the darkness of sin and its emptiness. You may feel like you're floating through space, cut off from the true source of life. Turn to Christ. Receive him by faith and you will certainly live. In the original text, all three of these words here, holy, blameless, above reproach, in Greek, they're all, they all begin with the same letter, the alpha, right? It's like the Greek A, which gives us the impression that Paul probably was pulling uh, three words that we should take, we should take together, right? But I spent some time just meditating on that word, blameless. Do you see that there? It means... Free from accusation. If you were to look at the word blameless throughout the New Testament, you would see it's used in a way that is very strong. It's like saying, I mean, it's very absolute. It's like saying that for those who are reconciled to God, 
one could not even level casual gossip against you. They couldn't even conjure up a lie to accuse you with. It is that clean. My present sin, the sin that I've committed even today, is so completely, so totally absolved, so fully pardoned that a tabloid magazine couldn't even cook up an accusation against one whom God has redeemed. He is so good at completing his work of salvation. Brother and sister, you sinner, you are blameless before the Lord. The sin you've committed today, you will never be blamed for. Don't be calloused to the gospel. Don't come to so much church that this stuff just washes over you and you end up with a hard Christian heart. You're blameless in Christ. I will not be blamed for the very sins I have committed even today. I can stand before God with my held high, with my eyes fixed on Christ, and I can embrace this alien identity that has been given to me, holy, blameless, and above reproach. (laughs) All because of Christ. We got, we, we've got to get this gospel medicine pumping in our veins. Because if it is true that if you begin to, as you come to understand this identity, what will happen is you won't take advantage of grace, but you will seek to seize upon it and live holy. Grace is what saves you and it is what makes you holy. You will have a desire to live accordingly. We have been declared righteous And so we will long to work to grow into it. The gospel declaration that the work is done is an explosive impulse that drives you to strive for holiness. Because you know you can't lose. It's learning, it's it's growing into our new gospel identity. Paul, even in this text, makes it clear that, that we can't, that, that, we, that we must have our former identity as sinners close and fully in mind as we grow in our sanctification, right? He said, and you who once were alienated with hateful minds, you Christians at Colossae, he wants them to remember this. We should have an understanding of our old selves. And of the sin that still lingers. If you ever meet a Christian who can't identify any sin in his or her life, you've probably not met a Christian. We should have an understanding of our old selves and humbly embrace it. But our lives should also be clearly different. As one pastor once said, present faith must and will lead to present results. If you have faith, there will be results in your life. That's how we know that our faith is real, as we change. You should be able to hold up your old life and your current life and see progress and see a difference. And other people should be able to do the same. That's why Paul told Timothy, he said, let your progress be evident to all. You see, if you're not getting better, then you didn't take the medicine, perhaps. 
That's what Paul is getting at there in verse 23. That those who have been reconciled to God can and will prove it with active faith. We'll address that more next week. But let me close with an illustration. On December 26th, 1944, the Japanese army sent a man, a second lieutenant by the name of Hiro Oendana, to the Philippine island of Lubang. His orders, in typical Japanese form, were to fight indefinitely. The problem was, the war ended several months later and no one told the lieutenant. He didn't get the news. No one sent a messenger. And so, he was a fanatical soldier and when, when, when people finally did get to him and tried to tell him the news, he wouldn't believe them. And he continued fighting. For 30 years, he continued to fight a war that had ended. A war that existed only in his mind. He lived in hiding. He would come out at night to steal food from the villages. And he would even shoot at people now and then. Ten years into hiding, he found a newspaper article about himself and his situation. And he thought it was propaganda to trick him into coming out of hiding. The Philippine government went to major lengths. I mean, you can imagine what this would be like living around this guy, right? They went to major lengths. They would drop pamphlets by, by airplane into the woods where they presumed that he was, saying, Onada, the war is over. But it took 30 years. It wasn't until 1974 that his own brother went to him and convinced him, begging him, the war was over. This man wasted 30 years all because he would not believe the news of peace. We can be like this lieutenant, refusing to hear and believe the message of peace, living in hiding, in an alienation, this shame from God, and alienated from our fellow man. But the gospel is a gospel of peace. Peace with God, and also, as we'll see later in Colossians, a gospel that enables us to live at peace with others, with other sinners. Christ won total victory on the cross. So let's enjoy peace. Stop living at war. Let's put our weapons down and live at peace with God and with our fellow men. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we commit this effort and these words to you, asking that you would help us leave here with a joy, knowing that we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that these words would sink deep into our hearts, producing holiness and righteousness. We give Christ all the glory for the work that he's accomplished, and we thank you for him. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.